Let's pray. God, we are thankful for the time that we have in store uh, in your word. Just pray that you will just expose truth and uh, give us a better view of ourselves and give us a view of how low grace reached and continues to reach us or continues to reach. And um, Lord, I pray that that will fuel our worship, not only today, but on an ordinary Tuesday. Uh, we also want to pray for another church in our community. And I want to pray for First Baptist Church, Greenville. Lord, we want to pray for their worship and their wonder and their faith. Lord, I pray that it's fueled by the exposition of the Word week by week. Pray for Terry and his studies, that he is overwhelmed with the gospel and uh, that he is surprised by your grace weekly, that it's invading first his marriage and uh, his home and then his uh, ministry. I pray that he has men that are coming alongside him that can hold him accountable, uh, that can um, speak truth into his life and keep him about the difficult work of uh, shepherding. And Lord, I pray that uh, you'll be glorified in that people. I pray that whatever way that we can serve as true partners, teammates, fellow worshipers in this community, that you'll give us a view of that. <clears throat> we turn this time over to you for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so go ahead and turn to the book of Hosea. I'll give you a page number. If you, uh, if you have an English Standard Version or if you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 751. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that Pew Bible. And uh, you can put cardboard on the front of it or leather or... Um, Naga hide. You can go kill some Nagas and attach that to that Bible. Whatever you want to do. Man, we want you to have a word, have a, a Bible in your hand. <clears throat> I'm actually, this morning, continuing to preach in John 15, but we're going to look at John 15 through the lens of Hosea. The first couple of verses of, the, of John, well... John 15, 12, and 13 is really where we're, is really what's our escort this morning is the best way to put it. It reads like this. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this and someone lay down his life for his friends. There's a paragraph here that we're just going to bathe in for the next few weeks. But these couple of verses, I feel like we, something we need to do is kind of preliminary work before we connect with how do we love others is really taking a Sunday to stop down and say, okay, how have we been loved? Jesus is talking to three guys or 11 guys at this point who've been following him for three years. And he says, this is my commandment. If you love me, you're going to obey me. And this is my commandment, by the way that you love one another. But he doesn't stop at the end of that statement. He says, as I have loved you. So it's important that we consider this morning, how has God loved us? I don't know that we even know how to love others, except that we connect with how God has loved us. We just kind of aim off in a direction and hope that we might hit something that's worthwhile. But if we are connected to how God has loved us, then we can come into a worship event as we love other people. So John is just serving as an escort today. We're going to look at how God had loved Israel through the book of Hosea. 
The book of Hosea was written around the latter half of the 8th century. <clears throat> Verse 1 tells us this. It's not straightforward, but it says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Judah was the southern kingdom that included Jerusalem. And in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. That's the northern kingdom. In the book of Hosea, that's called Ephraim, or if you like the Hebrew pronunciation, Ephraim. I like the southern pronunciation, Ephraim. It's written around the latter half of the 8th century, between 750 and 700 B.C. Israel was separated into these two kingdoms, north and south. And Hosea's major concern was to address the worship of Baal in the northern kingdom. Ephraim was worshiping Baal. Baal was the weather god worshipped in ancient Syria. Baalism involved drunkenness, bestiality, human sacrifice, mutilations, and incest. But mostly it involved sex by way of ritual prostitution. This is a key element in the Hosea story. Worship at the shrine would involve sexual intimacy with cult prostitutes and a prayer. Imagine Israelites praying this prayer. I beseech the goddess of Astarte to favor you and Baal to favor me. And they would share a rice cake together. A rice cake. Israel was shockingly participating in this. And the obvious problem is that they were God's bride. Israel was married to God, yet they were clearly committing adultery and whoredom. The craziness is that this is only 700 years, only 700 years, not a long time in the redemptive story. 700 years after this Israel walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. 700 years after they heard and saw Sinai quake. 700 years after they worshipped a golden calf and thousands were slaughtered by the Levites. Here they are committing whoredom with Baal. Might be thinking so far, you know, what could this possibly have to do with us? That sounds pretty gruesome. But, I mean, this is 2010. We're in Greenville. I mean, I don't worship Baal. I don't know of anybody that does. So what could this have to do with us? What you need to realize is Baal was actually the weather god. When Israel was going to the weather god, or who they thought was the weather god, they're going to something other than Yahweh to get what only Yahweh gives. It's easy to look at this and just separate this and say, man, this is not us. But what they were doing in going to Baal was looking to someone or something else for what only God can provide. That's not hard to do. It may not involve as vile a picture as we're seeing right here. But the outcome and the consequences and the impact is really no different. When we go to someone other than God for what only God can give. Worse yet, what these guys were guilty of is when they got what they were after. When maybe it did rain. 
They're going to Baal, and maybe it does rain. And they're like, man, sweet, Baal hooked us up. They're attributing to Baal what should be attributed to the living God. So not only were they going to the Baals, but they give credit to someone or something else other than God. God is not happy with this. So God is going to show Ephraim. He's going to show Israel exactly what they're doing. So he has a man, one dude named Hosea. He has a man illustrate what Israel is doing with the Baals. So a man named Hosea's life becomes a flannel graph for Israel. Passage continues in verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam. Hosea in this story that's going to unfold this morning is a replica of God. And Gomer is a replica of Israel. We don't know if she was a prostitute when they first got married. We don't know if she was just promiscuous or what, but I thought of the image. I'd seen a picture a long time ago in a life book when I was a kid of these kids sitting together, and this boy had his arm around the girl, and, and the girl that he's got his arm around is reaching across and holding the hand of another. And I actually found a, a replica of that picture online. I wonder if that's what the wedding was like. Hosea is looking longingly into the eyes of Gomer. And Gomer's holding the hand of the best man. We don't know if she was the prostitute in the beginning, but we know it turned that direction soon. Hosea is looking into his new, new bride's eyes, knowing that at some point that she was going to leave him and go run around with the world. He knows what's in store because God told him to marry this woman. If it's to be an illustration of God and his people, we've got to know right off the bat that it won't be a fairy tale picture of a beautiful love story. Not as the world would define it anyway. Hosea and love story continues. It looks like things were fine at first. At least his first kid was his own, a boy named Jezreel. The passage continues in verse 3. She conceived and bore him a son. It looks like he's the daddy of Jezreel. But we don't know how long after Jezreel was born and Jezreel was weaned that she started chatting with friends on Facebook, friends she hadn't, she hadn't seen in a long time. Text messages start coming into her phone and she's answering them. And Hosea's like, what are you doing? Oh, no, nothing. She starts taking late phone calls. And then before long, she's gone. At this point, he doesn't know, or we don't know from the story, if he finds her pregnant or if she comes home pregnant, but she, come, or she connects with him again, pregnant, by another man. In verse 6, it says, She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, Hosea, divorce this woman and run for your life. Actually, he didn't. He said, you know what? Call this child no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. 
name this little girl. No mercy. Once Gomer recovers from having this baby and weans her, the text messages and late night phone calls start again and she starts running around with friends and before long she's gone again, pregnant again. In verse 8 it says, When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. I think it's important at this point to take in the weight of what's happened to Hosea. I suspect that many of us have it, but I want us to personalize it. I want us to imagine just for a minute that Hosea is a friend of ours. A high school buddy here in Greenville. A guy you grew up with, a guy that you're close to, a guy that you care deeply about. And you, man, you had your fears when he started dating Gomer. Mmm, this is not looking good. You saw her holding hands with the best man at the wedding. How mad would you be at Gomer at this point? When Gomer has run off on Hosea and had two children by someone else. I almost feel hatred if I really personalize it. If I can imagine Homer being somebody that I really love and care about, a good close friend, and I see what his wife has done, I can easily feel hatred for Gomer. But then I have to reconnect to this story and remember that this is a flannel graph of a bigger story. And what's really being told here is the story of Israel. And the real crazy reality is it's our story too. It then used in verse 10... With a sweet word, the word yet. The word yet is a welcome word. Yet the number of children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. At this point, we stop talking about Hosea and Gomer, and it looks like we're reverting back to Israel and the future of Israel. And it looks like Israel's yet going to have a hope. God is not going to absolutely destroy Israel. And in the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Man, I want to know how that's going to happen. I want to know how these children who name no mercy and not my people are now going to be called children of the living God. Please, I'm, man, I'm on uh, the edge of my seat waiting for this to unfold. So let's look together in chapter 2. Chapter 2 captures some of the attitudes both of Hosea and of Gomer and of God regarding these forays into the world. Look at verse 5. For their mother, this is speaking about Gomer, but it's also speaking about Israel. Their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Gomer played the whore and she acted shamefully. And she said in her heart, I'm going to go after my lovers Because they'll give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. They'll give me what I want. They'll promise to make me happy. And I know they'll deliver. Baal will give me rain. If I go to Baal, he'll provide for me. L3 will take care of me. I can trust L3. 
Food will make me feel better. I can trust if I can just get a good meal, I'll feel better. An income will make me happy. Let's explore the space here. Let's consider it, really. Do you see how easy it is to look to something other than God for what only God can provide? My wife will make me happy. Put that on your wife and watch how hard that is on her and your marriage. If this new product sells or I get a raise, then I'll be happy. If I go back and spend time with my old friends, I'll be happy. Or if I get some new friends, I'll be happy. If I get a new wife, I'll be happy. I'll get what I need from people. I'll get what I need from experiences. I'll get what I need from stuff. Baalism. Exactly what Gomer did. And meanwhile, in verse 8, verse 8 says, Gomer did not know that it was I. This is Hosea speaking, a.k.a. God in the bigger picture. It was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. While Gomer is running off to the world, running off to these men who are promising everything, and she's thinking, they're going to give me everything. The reality is it's Hosea who's giving her the goods. He's giving her the grain and the wine and the oil, and he's lavishing on her silver and gold that she's spending on Baal. She was oblivious to Hosea's tender care for her, even as she betrayed him. If this is a picture of God, man, I'm seeing some beautiful patience and grace in my God right here. Makes me think of 2 Peter 3. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I'm thankful for this picture of God in Hosea. Continue on in verse 9. You're going to hear a broken heart of a husband and a broken heart of a God. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. I will put an end to all her mirth her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. Is this about Hosea or Gomer? Is this about Israel? Yes. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. I will punish her for the feast of days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Sounds like the broken heart of a husband who's been wronged. Broken heart of a God when his people look to other things that only he can provide. But that sweet yet in verse 10 that I mentioned in chapter 1, verse 10, connects with verse 14 right here in this shocking new direction for this passage. It says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness, and I will speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. 
Here the story takes a direction that it just doesn't make sense. It seems like Hosea would be done with Gomer. It seems like God would be done with Israel. But God says, yet I'm going to allure this whore, really, into the wilderness. And I'm going to speak tenderly to her. And I'm going to give her her vineyards. And I'm going to make the valley of Achor a door of hope. I doubt that few will connect to the valley of Achor, but I want to make the connection. It's been some time now, but at some point in the past, I've preached through Joshua chapter 7. The nation of Israel has gone to the promised land. They've crossed the Jordan on dry ground. They've fit the battle of Jericho. They've gone on to Ai, and they've had their behinds handed to them. And Joshua rents his clothes, tears his clothes. He's like, man, why has this happened? God, I thought you were on our side. Why did we get our behinds handed to us by Ahi? And God says, you know what? Somebody took some of the devoted things that I said were supposed to go into the treasury. And they took them for themselves. So a man named Achan was found guilty. Here's how the story goes. Joshua calls out all the tribes, tribe by tribe, clan by clan, and he asks them person by person, what have you done? And Achan is found guilty. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and his tent and all that he had, and they brought them to the valley of Achor. That's the valley of Achor. That means valley of trouble. And Achan and his whole family and everything that he owned, even the hamsters, everything is brought out there. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today, Achan. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, a.k.a. the Valley of Trouble. So in Hosea here, where he refers to the Valley of Achor, and God says, I'm going to make the Valley of Achor a place that should be a Valley of Judgment. I'm going to make it a door of hope. I'm going to make it a door of hope. I will give Gomer mercy when she does not deserve it. I will give her grace when she has scorned me, betrayed me, given herself to anyone and everyone and everything but me. The valley of trouble will become a valley, a door of hope. And then in verse 16, it says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. You've lain down with everybody else. I'll make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. And you want to know what grace looks like. Climb into this story. 
I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love, and in mercy. Sounds like the words of man at a wedding that he might have for his chaste bride, rightfully wearing white, looking deep into her eyes. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I'll betroth you to me in faithfulness because you would. I've dreamt of my whole life. And I just, this moment is so special and it's so awesome. These sound like the words for a woman that rates hearing those words, but these words are not for that woman. These words are for Gomer. These words are for Israel. These words are for you and for me. And then in verse 23, it says, I will have mercy on our little girl. Excuse me, your little girl. No mercy. And I will say to your boy, not my people, you're my people now, boy. I will call your son conceived by another man. I'll call your son Laddie. And I will call him my own. Man, that's the kind of God that we have. The Hosea Gomer story ends with God commanding Hosea to do for Gomer what God will do for undeserving Israel. It's right there in in verse 1 of chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, this is Hosea, God said to Hosea, now Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. This isn't another woman. This is Gomer. Go get her, Hosea. You're going to show through flannel graph of your life what I'm doing with Israel. Go get Gomer. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. (laughs) It's a weird insertion. Cakes of raisins. It's as weird and as oddly misplaced as Israel's love for the world. As Gomer's love for other men. Raising cakes. Man, what an amazing story. Go redeem her. Go get her. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethich of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. I don't know what an ancient slave market was like. But I don't imagine that Gomer was treated very well. And I don't imagine she was in too good a condition. Fifteen shekels of silver is half price for the going rate for a slave. I think it tells us that Gomer was nasty. Lice in her hair, matted hair, gaunt, sick, Hosea shows up at the slave market, 15 shekels of silver and some barley and stuff. She was likely naked, appropriate, considering how much time she spent that way. You can imagine Hosea taking off his cloak, walking over to her and putting his cloak around her and covering her shame. 
covering her nakedness, putting his arm around her waist, and helping her home. I wonder if she even recognized him. Apart from the gospel, this is the greatest love story in our Bibles. A crazy, crazy love of a man for a really bad woman. And an amazing God who loves a really undeserving people. This is how God loved Israel. Turn to Luke chapter 18. This morning I told you we were going to look at how God loved Israel. Well now we're going to look at how God the Son loves the disciples. If he's given the commandment to go love others as I have loved you, let's look specifically how Christ loved the disciples. First of all, I want us to consider who he picked. Let's just consider for a moment who Jesus picked. He didn't pick the best and the brightest and the finest and the shiniest. He picked fishermen. He picked tax collectors. He picked low lives. He didn't pick the good citizens and the exemplars for all that's right and good. He didn't pick a beautiful bride. He picked dirty, smelly men. He picked frauds and turncoats. That's what tax collectors were. They were in the pocket of Rome, skimming off the top. That's why they were all rich. That's why all the Jews hated them. That would be like Crosspoint putting an ad in the newspaper encouraging people to come be part of our church and putting a picture of public enemy number one who's a member of our church. That's what Jesus did when he picked tax collectors to be his followers. Gomers. He illustrated that with the likes of these men. Luke chapter 18 verse 9, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous In other words, that didn't really think they looked like Gomer. They trusted in their own righteousness and treated others with contempt. That goes together. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You're lucky to have me on your team, God. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be Exalted. He illustrated the forgiven with guys like this tax collector. 
I know it's a parable. I know it's a fictitious Pharisee, but in some ways it represents the attitude of the Pharisees. And I just wonder, had they read Hosea? Or were they too respectable to consider that they might be Gomer? Seems Christ picked men that look like Gomer. He proved a passage that's meant a lot to me over the years. In 1 Corinthians, God chose what is foolish in the world to to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's God's character. Why would we think anything it would be any different now? He chose the weak and the foolish to confound the wise. Weak. I'm needy. If you know me, you know I'm needy. Foolish. That's who he's chosen to confound the wise. Who do you think you are? Think about it for a minute. Really. Who do you really think you are? You think like a tax collector? You think like a fisherman? Or do you think like a Pharisee? Do you see yourself in 1 Corinthians? Secondly, let's look at their lives. Turn to Luke 9. Luke chapter 9. This is kind of toward the beginning of the ministry. You know, he's called, remember, tax collectors, uh, fishermen, just really kind of a rough bunch. And in chapter 9, verse 46, listen to the conversation between members of this rough bunch. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Isn't that funny? An argument arose among them, these same guys, as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. And John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because we wouldn't want anybody to cast out any demons in your name because he does not follow with us. He's not on the A-team, Jesus. And Jesus says to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. John's words right there are reflective of his heart. He's not on the A-team. How dare they? We're on your team, Jesus. We're on your A-team, And in fact, we're arguing between ourselves who's the greatest. Turn to Luke 22. This is the character of the men that Jesus chose. This next one really, really, really gets me. The timing, I think, is what gets me. This is on the eve before the crucifixion. It may have been at the Lord's Supper table. Beginning in verse 24, a dispute arose among them, these same jokers, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. I I I don't know why it doesn't say, like in red letters, really? Are we going to do this again? Really? Are we going to go there again yet? 
I'm going to be nailed to a cross tomorrow, and you're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Really? God the Son says the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. This latter argument for who's the greatest is on the eve of his crucifixion. Looking at this through the lens of Hosea, this would be like Gomer, gaunt, sick, nasty, dirty, in her crate or box or cell or whatever they kept the slaves in, arguing with her slave mate about who's going to bring the most at market the next day. Oh, I think I'll bring more than you, more quid than you at market tomorrow. You see how ridiculous that is? Meanwhile, Hosea is at home gathering his pocket change to go buy a half-price whore. And they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Man, I look at this and I think to myself, man, surely things are different now because we would never be like this. But then I see this in myself. I see this in you. I look at the disciples and I think, man, we're no different. We want to get the glory too. We're glory thieves. We want to be the hero. We want to be the savior. We want to be lauded. We want to be applauded. We want to make a difference often for our sake and seldom for his. We will cloak it in righteousness, but our names will be all over it. Make sure my name's attached to this. That's Baalism, looking to people for what only God can provide. We can make bales of anything, and we can even, even try and cloak it in righteousness. Man, when I look at the kind of people that Christ picked, and then I look at their lives, we've got to ask the question, what do you think you're like? We've got to ask the question, what do you think your lives look like? Whose fame are you about? Really? What fuels your secret motives? Really? Is there anything in yourself that you despise? Are you in fellowship with the tax collector at all? Third thing in considering Christ's relationship with his disciples, this misshapen, misfit lot is that he laid down his life for these guys. That's the shocker. John 15, 13, greater love hath no one than this and someone laid down his life for his friends. That doesn't paint the whole picture. While one verse is completely true, it does not reveal the truth completely because we didn't start out as friends. Basically, what's happening through the work of the cross is former enemies were made friends. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled by the death of his son, a.k.a. a door of hope in the valley of Achor.
while we were yet enemies. Colossians 1.22 says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, a.k.a. a door of hope through the finished work of the cross, in order to present you, fellow gomers, to the Father holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's the shocking scandal of the gospel. I have a friend that every now and again will post something on Facebook or somewhere from the message. I don't want to get lynched for using the message this morning. The message is kind of a paraphrase. It's not something I use very often. It would be like a friend of mine that has a really good handle on Greek, putting in his own words what the Greek says. That's what a paraphrase is. Listen to these words in the message from Romans chapter 5. We can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for. That would make sense. We can understand Hosea going to the slave market for a woman worth living for or living with. Let's rephrase that. We could understand him gathering up his barley and silver. If she had somehow been wrongly captured. We can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for. And we can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice. That makes sense. But God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatever to him. Man, that's the scandal of the gospel right there. God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatever to him. Man, our slave market experience is very similar in that we're like Gomer, guilty, gaunt, naked, ashamed, half price. But our husband doesn't show up with 15 shekels of silver. He shows up with blood. He redeemed us with his own blood. How can God, Father, Son, and Spirit, love us this way? Hosea chapter 11 says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? This is God speaking. He says, My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man. Thank goodness. Hosea was like otherworldly the way he endured Gomer. But God is divine in the way he's made a way of hope, a door of hope for us. I am a God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. The good news in this, the good news of the gospel is only seen and appreciated through the lens of an accurate view of yourself. Not only can we not love others rightly, except that we connect with how He's loved us, I don't even know that we can even worship 
except that we connect with who he's loved and how he's loved us. This is such a hard thing to address. Most of us, if you're like me, need a periodic kick in the humility pants to remember that we're not the Pharisee, we're the tax collector. There's a rare one among you, though, that struggles at the other end of the continuum. Just this week, I had the chance to talk with someone. It was a brief conversation with someone who used to be a member of Crosspoint who shared. She just said, man, I, I, just, I just felt beat down all the time. I just, I just wanted to shoot myself. I just felt beat down because the sermons were just so hard, so hard reckoning with things like that. And my heart was broken for her. It's so hard in one sermon to capture both ends, the people that need the kick in the humility pants and then the people that need to be encouraged at the other end. But this woman needed to be encouraged and she didn't make the journey with us anyway. She's still in the faith. There are people at that other end, though, that are beaten down, see themselves in the tax collector, and they're looking for someone week in, week after, week after week to tell you you're okay. Well, you know what? Whether she was here or not, whether you're that person or not, I can't tell you you're okay. But I can tell you that God made a door of hope in the valley of trouble for you. And his name is Jesus Christ, and his work is finished, and it's good. That's all I can tell you. That's the good news. That's where joy comes from. I can't tell you you're okay, but man, I can tell you God is good. God, I pray that this, um, I pray that these truths about Hosea and Gomer are truths that we connect with. I pray that they're truths that we own, that we can be broken and yet joyful both at the same time, that we can be convicted and worship both at the same time. Lord, I pray that it leave us amazed by your grace. I pray, too, that it will make for a really level ground where a church is full of people that don't have contempt for each other because we have not arrived. Because we do see ourselves like a bunch of tax collectors and a bunch of gomers. Lord, I pray it makes for people that are approachable, that are teachable, that are eager to have others speak truth into their lives and be on the journey together. Lord, I'm thankful for Hosea's faithfulness in putting the gospel on display. I'm thankful that you've made a door of hope in the valley of trouble. We are thankful for Jesus. Thankful for your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper now. At the end of that passage that Ben was just reading, Jesus tells them, You are those who have stayed with me. And I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table. And so we come now to eat at his table and enjoy body broken and blood poured out. And if you're here this morning and you are believing this story, you are resting in this story of grace, this unbelievable, amazing story. If you're resting and enjoying this body broken and blood poured out, then eat.
eat up and enjoy. And I would also say if you're struggling with a heart that's unrepentant, maybe you feel like really you deserve a body broken and a blood poured out or you're harboring unrepentance towards anyone else or your own sin and you have a dark corner that you will not let anybody shine light on, I would encourage you to pass on this meal. Enjoy it knowing that we don't deserve it. And we'll do that uh, together. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body. Humbled, amazed, uh, resting and enjoying. Take and eat. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks... He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. I was glad this, this message didn't end up on Mother's Day. Um, it did a couple years ago. It did. Mother's Day a couple years ago was our first message on Hordom, and uh, this was Hordom revisited this time. So, um, Never been one much for special Mother's Day or Father's Day sermons. If you're like this morning, I, you know, I know there might be some visitors here or some folks that haven't been here. If you've been here a while, you're probably accustomed to this. But if you're here for the first time, you're like, man, my sensibilities have really been offended by the, the kind of the gravity of what we dealt with and the imagery. Um, I want to encourage you. I think it's okay to talk with our kids about things that are biblical realities, they're redemptive story realities. And I'm going to pray, as I, as I close here, I'm going to pray for parents that you'll have a chance to talk with your kids if you have some questions about what was that, what did this mean? What did I, you don't have to go into a lot of detail with the kids. I didn't go to a lot of detail this morning. Just read words, you know, or read some of the basics. Um, you don't have to get graphic, although the story's pretty ugly. It's our story. So we can be real sanitary and real hypoallergenic and how we deal with the gospel, and then we, we have no worship. You're not amazed by anything. Then you find yourself that tax collector who apparently, I mean, again, a fictitious tax collector. Hosea was just a little bit too, maybe a little too raw for him. Mm. They never dealt with who he really was. That's where joy comes from. That's where the marvel of the gospel comes from. That's where the scandal of it comes from, where you just can't wait to tell other people about it. Man, let me tell you what's happened to me. Um, and it just also makes for really level people, <laughs> people that can just walk with each other, not easily offended. If you find yourself easily offended, then listen to the message again and again and again and again and again. Bathe, immerse yourself in Hosea. There's a treasure there. There's a rare jewel of Christian contentment that comes from this, Jeremiah Burroughs' words. So, if your sensibilities are offended, I, I, I hope that you can walk through this and just tune in to the reference this morning. This is, this is our guide. This is what we're praying for in our community, that other churches are engaging. This is what we want to be engaging because this builds a people, what God does through this. Not pep talks, not motivational speaking, not life coaching, but exposing this work or this word. It does a work in a people and creates something that was not here, 1 Corinthians one twenty seven. It turns something, it makes something of a bunch of people that were once not. 
So um, I encourage you. On that note, if you're a visitor this morning, a couple things. I want to just tell you, welcome. And I have to confess to you, we're terrible about having like a special thing for visitors. You know, really, and I'll tell you why. It's because we feel like we're sitting around our dinner table together. Like we're at home with each other. And it's not like we're thinking this is the front door to Cross Point Fellowship. Like we have one shot at you. And we're hoping that you, your journey in search for a church is, has more substance than that. Um, than whether someone shook your hand or not. Uh, and the same uh, breath, I want to encourage those who are members of Cross Point to look around you and see if you have a visitor. Let's make them feel welcome since they've joined our dinner table this morning. Uh, we want you to know that you are welcome. And uh, we do care about the journey that you're on. You are welcome to dine with us. And I want to encourage you to get to know us through small groups. Um, or through going to lunch together right now. Small groups isn't the, the uh, silver uh, bullet to all things good and true. They're just, we're trying to be good at a few things. And that's one of them. Engaging each other through small groups. So um, I encourage you to connect to something like that. And get to know this people. Get to know the journey that we're on. Small groups is where we process the concrete that's been poured this morning. It hardens and settles in community. And through small groups of shepherds that are leading people in the word and asking questions and engaging each other in things that matter. So um, if you're looking for a church where you don't want to be known, then you're not looking for a church. I, I hate to break it to you. You're looking for, I don't know what you're looking for. It's not a church. Because church, biblically defined, is a place where you are known and knowing. You're members of one another, part of each other's lives, on a journey together. So, um, I encourage you to take that step to, to do that. And um, the last thing, Joseph, where are you? I, I see. Come on up, Joseph. This is Joseph's shoemate. He's coming for membership this morning. Joseph is from Salado. And uh, I pick on Salado because they have that sign on 35 that says, Come find yourself in Salado. Joseph found himself. And he's here now. <laughs> yeah, he grew up there. So he's found him. He's known where he was for a long time. And uh, Christy and I went to Salado. And it's such a tiny little town. It's cool, though. And he was part of a church in, um, in, in Salado. There's right on the river. Just beautiful, beautiful facility. And uh, he's grown up in the faith. He, uh, at college at A&M, really engaged other people in a meaningful way. He's, he did, like what I'm describing with other men, walking through the Word together and engaging them and became part of a church there that was walking through the Word together. And uh, he just has a deep love for the Lord, deep love for the people of God. And he, this morning, he's making the statement through what he's doing right now that he stands in agreement with us um, through membership. It's a, kind of a covenant. We, we want to be members of each other. This matters. It's not a, I, don't, I, I can tell you right now, I don't even know how many members we have. We have 90 families as of this morning. That's what I do know. 90 families. And we're counting Joseph a family. So family of one at this point. Part of the people of God. So uh, y'all stand and after, after I pray, y'all come meet Joseph and invite him over for dinner or something. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for the time that we've had to go this morning in the Word. I want to pray for parents with kids that have some things to talk about today. Um, Lord, I pray that dinner tables and dens and living rooms will be filled with conversation that matters and uh, about deep and difficult truths that will just open up the riches of the gospel and just put your grace on display. Lord, I pray that you give us a view of it. Just give us a glimpse that just captivates us and changes us and leaves us in awe 
of your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Lord, I pray that you'll guide those conversations, that families will talk together and friends will talk together and small groups will work together and, and um, walk in what we've heard. I pray for Joseph too. And thank you so much for bringing uh, people who want to be known and uh, want to know and want to be part of a community and be part of the people of God. Thank you for, for bringing Joseph to be part of this body. I pray that he's equipped well. I pray that he is uh, members of each other and uh, engaging each other. And I pray that he's bringing bring glory to you by the way that he lives and loves. And uh, Lord, we love you this morning. We turn the rest of this day over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.